Discover new opportunities together in a new Chevy. Meet up in an Equinox, winner of the J.D. Power Award for initial quality among compact SUVs. Lend a hand in the strong and capable Silverado or mix it up in a high-tech Trax with an available 11-inch diagonal touchscreen. Find family, friends, and fun in the Chevy that's right for you. Click to learn more. Chevrolet, together let's drive. For J.D. Power 2023 U.S. Initial Quality Study Award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the award-winning Parareality Radio. I'm Sandman, and I'll be your host for the next two hours. Good evening, everybody, and thanks for tuning in tonight. Of course, it's Monday, November the 3rd, 2014, and that means it's time for your monthly episode of Parareality Radio. <clears throat> tonight, I'm going to be talking about the most mysterious manuscript in the world. The Voynich Manuscript. What is the Voynich Manuscript, you asked? Well, I'll tell you. The Voynich Manuscript is an illustrated book, handwritten in an unknown writing system. The pages in the book have been carbon dated to the early 15th century and may have been composed in northern Italy during the Italian Renaissance. The text is written from left to right, and most of the pages have illustrations or diagrams. <clears throat> Excuse me. The mystery of the meaning and origin of the manuscript has excited the popular imagination, making the manuscript the subject of novels, speculations, and countless number of TV specials. None of the many hypotheses proposed over the last hundred years or so is, has really yet been independently verified. Many people have speculated that the writing might be nothing more than complete nonsense. <clears throat> but before I get into talking all about the Voynich Manuscript, let me first of all tell you how you can get in contact with me here at the show because there are several different ways that you can go about this. First of all, you can send an email. That's sandman at parareality.com. That's my email address, sandman at parareality.com You can also just visit the website. Check that out. That's www.parareality.com of course. I'm also available on Facebook if you're like the many millions of people in the world who have Facebook. Just look me up at sandman.parareality there on Facebook. And finally, 
you're still able to call the show. That's the studio line. The number is 615-692-1170. That number to call once again is 615-692-1170. Now, even though this show in its current form is of a podcast, and I'm not really doing that many live shows anymore, the... Hey, I'm going to have to get something to drink here in a second. The studio line is left over from the days that I was doing a live radio broadcast. And I just couldn't bring myself to get rid of it because it's been the number for the show for so many years. And I just couldn't couldn't get rid of the, of the studio line. So I decided to leave it. So uh, <clears throat> if you call, it's mainly just to leave a message or comment about the show. I don't get, really get that many calls. Uh, I have had a few. But uh, if you're looking to call and uh, if you don't want to write an email or whatever, if you just, you know, want to call, leave a message with your comment about the show. Maybe you have an idea for a show topic. Maybe you love the show and want to tell me how much you love it. Maybe you have an idea for the show. Maybe you hate the show. You want to tell me how bad I suck. I don't, you know, call up, leave a message. That's 615-692-1170. Now, just be aware that I may play your comment back on the show. So leaving a message for me constitutes giving me your permission to play your message back on the air. If you don't want that to happen, you need to tell me whenever you call that you don't want your message played back on the air. And you never know, I may also answer the phone because, well, I'm I'm always in the studio working on the show and you never know I just may actually be there and I may answer the phone so that number once again is 615-692-1170 those are all the ways you can get in touch with me Sandman here on Bear Reality Radio so now let's get on with the show and let's start talking about the Voynich Manuscript written in Central Europe at the end of the 15th or maybe sometime during the 16th century the origin language and date of the Voynich Manuscript, which is coincidentally, or maybe not so coincidentally, named after the Polish-American antiquarian bookseller Wilfred M. Voynich, who acquired it in 1912. The, <clears throat> the origin language and date of this manuscript are still being debated as vigorously as its puzzling drawings and undeciphered text. Described as a magical or scientific text, nearly every page contains botanical, figurative, and scientific drawings of a provincial but lively character drawn in ink with vibrant washes in various shades of green, brown, yellow, blue, and red. So let me introduce this mysterious mysterious manuscript to you. The Voynich Manuscript is considered to be the most mysterious manuscript in the world. To this day, this medieval artifact resists all efforts at translation. It's either an ingenious hoax or an unbreakable cipher. The manuscript, as I just said, is named after its discoverer, the American antique book dealer and collector Wilfred M. Voynich, who discovered it in 1912 in a collection of ancient manuscripts kept in a, in a, a villa somewhere near Rome, which had by then been turned into a Jesuit college, which uh, closed in 1953. Based on the evidence of the calligraphy, the drawings, 
the vellum and the pages and the pigments. Wilfred Voynich estimated that the manuscript was created sometime in the late 13th century. The manuscript is small, uh, 7 by 10 inches or so, but it's thick at nearly 235 pages. It's written in an unknown script of which there's no uh, known other instance in the world of this script. Now, it's abundantly illustrated with awkward colored drawings of things like unidentified plants, things that seem to be herbal recipes, and tiny little naked women frolicking in bathtubs that's connected by intricate plumbing, looking more like anatomical parts than hydraulic contraptions. It's got mysterious charts in it, in which some seem to have like astronomical objects seen through a telescope. Some things look like live cells seen through a microscope. And there are also charts in which you can see a strange calendar of zodiacal signs populated by, once again, what can only be described as tiny little naked people and things that look like trash bins or, or trash cans. No one really knows the origins of this manuscript. The experts believe it's European, and they believe it was written between the 15th and 17th centuries. You don't... There's so many speculations we have... I mean, we're, you know, two minutes into the show, and so far we have, well, it could have been written in the 13th century, or it could have been written in the 15th or 16th. Now they're saying the the 15th or 17th. So you don't really know. There's no definite of when exactly it was written. <clears throat> now, from a piece of paper, which was once attached to the Voynich Manuscript, and which is now stored in one of the boxes belonging with the Voynich Manuscript's holdings, of the Benecki Library, it's known that the manuscript once formed part of the private library of Petrus Bex. He was the 22nd general of the Society of Jesus. There is no other example of the language in which the manual is written. It's some sort of alphabetic script, but of an alphabet variously reckoned to have from 19 to 28 letters, none of which bear any relationship to the English or European letter system. The text has no apparent corrections, and there's actually evidence for two different languages, which was uh, in kind of investigated by a couple of different guys um, over the years, and Apparently, there's evidence that there might have been more than one writer of this manuscript, probably indicating an ambiguous coding scheme. Apparently, Voynich, the man that quote-unquote discovered this manuscript, wanted to have the mysterious manuscript deciphered and provided photographic copies to a number of experts. However, despite the, the efforts of the many well-known cryptologists and scholars, the book remains undeciphered and unread. 
There are some claims of decipherment, but to date, as of the airing of this show, none of these can be substantiated with a complete translation. Let me get a little drink here. My <clears throat> now as I keep clearing my throat. Bad time to do the show with your throat like that. Sorry about that. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about the history of this manuscript. I'm going to go back as far as I can find out information on this, okay? The book was bought by a man named H.P. Krauss, who was a New York book antiquarian in 1961 for the sum of $24,500. Now, he later valued it at about $160,000, but strangely enough, wasn't able to find anyone to buy it. That's a heck of a markup, isn't it? So, unable to find a buyer for this thing, he finally donated it to Yale University in 1969, where it remains to date at the uh, Benecki Rare Book Library, and the catalog number on this is M as in Michael, S as in Sam, MS408. I don't know if you can actually go in and... I'm not, I'm not going to say check this book out because, of course, they're not going to let you check the book out. But I don't know if anyone can just go in and um, to the to the rare book library at Yale and say, "Hey, uh, I want to take a look at this." You know, I don't know if I don't know how they have it displayed or anything. I know you can't check it out. I don't know if you can go in with the white gloves and a security guard and look. At, probably not. But it would be nice to find out, right? <clears throat> so, it's known from a letter. Uh, written by a man named Johannes Marcus Marcy. He was rector of the University of Prague to uh, a man named Anastasius Kircher, who was a Jesuit scholar that was dated all the way back in 1666. Uh, the manuscript was brought by Emperor Rudolph II of Bohemia. And I just so happen to have a copy of this letter that I'm going to read for you. And it reads thusly. Reverend and distinguished sir, father in Christ, this book bequeathed to me by an intimate friend, I destined for you, my very dear Anastasius, as soon as it came into my possession, for I was convinced it could be read by no one except yourself. The former owner of this book asked your opinion by letter, copying and sending you a portion of the book from which he believed you would be able to read the remainder, but he, at that time, refused to send the book itself. To its deciphering, he devoted unflagging toil, as it is apparent from attempts of his which I send you herewith, and he relinquished hope only with his life. But his toil was in vain, for such sphinxes as these obey no one but their master." Except now this token, such as it is, and long overdue though it be, of my affection for you, and burst through its bars, if there are any with your wanted success. Dr. Raphael, tutor in the Bohemian language to Ferdinand III, then king of Bohemia, told me the said book had belonged to the Emperor Rudolph, and that he presented it to the bearer who brought him the book, 600 ducats. He believed the author was Roger Bacon, the Englishman. On this point, I suspended judgment. 
It is your place to define for us what view we should take thereon, to whose favor and kindness I unservedly commit myself and remained, at the command of your reverence, Johann Marcus Marcy of Cornland, Prague, 19th of August, 1665 or 1666. There's a little bit of discrepancy on, on the number there. So, historically, it first appears in 1586 at the court of Rudolf II of Bohemia, who was one of the most eccentric European monarchs of, of the, that or really any other period. Rudolf collected, get this, he collected dwarves and had a regiment of giants in his army. What a weird dude, right? <clears throat> he was also surrounded by astrologers and was fascinated by games and codes and music. He was pretty typical of the occult, of the uh, uh, occult-oriented Protestant nobleman of this period, and he epitomized the liberated Northern European prince. He was patron. He was a patron of alchemy and supported the printing of alchemical literature. The Rosicrucian conspiracy was was being quietly formulated during this same period, and. To Rudolf's court came an unknown person who sold this manuscript to the king for 300 gold ducats, which, translated into modern-day currency, is about $14,000. Now, this is an astonishing amount of money to have paid for a manuscript at that time, which indicated that the emperor must have actually been highly impressed by it. Now, accompanying the manuscript was a letter that stated it was the work of the Englishman Roger Bacon, who flourished in the 13th century and who was a noted pre-Copernican astronomer. Only two years before the appearance of the Voynich Manuscript, John Dee, he was a great English navigator, astrologer, magician, intelligence agent, and occultist, had lectured in Prague on Bacon. The manuscript somehow passed to Jacobs de, de Tepenitz, who was the director of Rudolph's Botanical Gardens, and it speculated that this must have happened sometime after 1608, when Jacobs Hornecki received his title de Tepenitz. Thus, 1608 is the earliest definite date for the manuscript. 1608, earliest definite date. Codes from the early 16th century onward in Europe were all derived from the stenographia of Johann Tremethius, Bishop of Sponheim, who was an alchemist who wrote on the encipherment of secret messages. He had a limited number of methods and no military, alchemical, religious, or political code was composed by any other means the way. <clears throat> excuse me, throughout a period that lasted well into the 17th century. Yet, the Voynich Manuscript doesn't appear to have any relationship to the codes derivative of Johann Trometheus of Sponheim. In 1622, the manuscript passed to the possession of an unidentified individual that left the book in his or her will to Marcy. Now, Marcy must have known about this manuscript before 1644, as the information concerning the price that the emperor paid came from Dr. Raphael Misowski, as mentioned in his letter. 
Marcy sent the manuscript immediately with that letter that I just read to Anastasius Kircher, who was, like I said, a Jesuit priest and a scholar in Rome. We're thinking sometime in 1666. I said the date is a little skewed. It could be 65, 66, but we're actually thinking sometime 66. That's the, the most popular date. Anyway, he sent this in 1666. Uh, who, who apparently knew of it and had exchanged letters and transcribed portions with the previous unidentified owner. Between that time and 1912, when Voynich discovered it, it's speculated that the manuscript may have been stored or even forgotten in some library and finally moved to the Jesuit college at um, the Villa Montragon, which was right outside of Rome. Marcy's letter to Kircher was still attached to the manuscript when Voynich brought it, bought it. In that letter, Marcy mentioned the name of Roger Bacon as a possible author, although no conclusive evidence of authorship is available. A possible link between Rudolph and Bacon is the aforementioned John Dee, who was, as I've said, uh, he was an English mathematician, astrologer, and collector of Bacon's work, who visited Rudolph's court in sometime between uh, 1582 to 1586. So there we have an introduction to the manuscript and a history of it all the way up until its quote-unquote discovery or rediscovery in 1912 by Mr. Voynich. So what are the parts of this manuscript? What's inside of this thing? Well, as I've said, the Voynich manuscript is about 7 inches by 10 inches. Some believe that it's a book about alchemy. It contains the equivalent of 235 pages, but may have originally contained not less than 262 pages. So we've got a few pages that have gone missing over the centuries. There are 212 pages with text and drawings. 33 pages contain nothing but text. And the last page contains the key, whatever the key is. The text is written in an enciphered script. And the drawings are colored, as I said, in red, blue, brown, yellow, and green. The contents of the manuscript are divided up into five categories. The first and largest section contains 130 pages of plant drawings with accompanying text, and this is called the botanical division. The second contains 26 pages of drawings, obviously astrological and astronomical in nature. The third section contains four pages of text and 28 drawings, which would appear to be biological in nature. The fourth division contains 34 pages of drawings which are pharmaceutical in nature. And finally, the last section of the manuscript contains 23 pages of text arranged in short paragraphs, each beginning with a star. The last page, the 24th of this division, contains the key only. <clears throat> so, what are some theories about this mysterious Voynich manuscript? Well, as I've said a couple of times, to this day, the Voynich Manuscript has resisted all efforts at translation. It's either an ingenious hoax or some sort of unbreakable cipher. 
the contents and origin of the manuscript have been a matter of continuous and stimulating debate ever since its discovery. Now, here are some of the possibilities that have been discussed about the Voynich Manuscript. There's basically two categories of this. Okay, There are um, that it's that it's real, that it's some sort of text that's not cipherable. And there's also that it there is no intelligible meaning to it, that it's just a, some sort of a big hoax that someone has perpetrated. So let's start with category number one. The there is an intelligible underlying text theory. Okay, so it could be in some sort of natural language, such as Latin or abbreviated Latin, <clears throat> English, German, Norse, a phonetic Chinese script. It could be Greek, Hebrew, Sanskrit, Arabic, Pig Latin, and many others. There's also speculation that it could be written in a fake natural language, like Enochian or uh, Balabaian. Now, I did some research on these. So let me kind of break down these fake natural languages. <clears throat> First of all, Enochian. Enochian is a name often applied to an occult or an angelic language recorded in the private journals of John Dee and his colleague Edward Kelly in the late 16th century England. Now we've heard the 16th century mentioned before, and of course we've also heard the name John Dee brought up earlier in this broadcast, right? So the these two things are associated with the Voynich manuscript in some way. <clears throat> Kelly was a spirit medium, and he worked with John Dee in his magical investigations. The men claimed that the language was revealed to them by angels. The language is integral to the practice of Enochian magic. The language found in D. and Kelly's journals encompasses a limited textual corpus, only some of it with English translations. Several linguists, notably uh, one famous language named Donald Laycock, have studied Enochian and argue against any extraordinary features in this language. And next we have the fake language of Balabalian. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, this is very hard to pronounce. As you all, if you've listened to the show, you know that I sometimes have trouble pronouncing things. It's the, the best pronunciation that I can come up is Bal, Bala I Balian. Bala I Balan. And it's spelled B A L A I B A L I. A N Bala Ibalan Bala Ibalan comes out kind of strange when I try to say it fast, but Bala Ibalan Bala Ibalan. Anyway, this is a constructed language created in uh, Timurid or uh, Savathid Iran and one of the first known constructed language. Its original creator may have been 14th century mystic. Fazla Astrabadi. 
founder of Herfism, or some, some of his followers in the late, oops, in the late 15th century. Hit my mic stand. Sorry about that. There's also theories that it's in a coded language, like a, a, a cipher in a single multi-substitution or something like that cipher. There's also theories that it's in an artificial language, like lingua ignota. Okay, what is lingua ignota? Lingua ignota, or Latin for unknown language, was, decipher, was described by the 12th century abbess of Rupertsburg, Hildeberg of Biggen, who apparently used it for mysterious purposes. And I've got this written down so I can try to slaughter the language, the names, right? <clears throat> to write it, she used an alphabet of 23 letters, the literae ignotae. She particularly described the language in a work entitled, now this is long and I'm going to slaughter it. The title of the work was Lingua Ignota per Simplicum Hominum Hildegardum Prolata, which survived in two manuscripts, both dating back to sometime around 1200. The Weisbaden Codex and a Berlin uh, manuscript, for lack of a better word. The text is a glossary of about just a little over 10,000 words in lingua ignota with glosses mostly in Latin, sometimes in German, and the words appear to be um, mostly nouns with a few adjectives thrown in there for good measure. Grammatically, it appears to be a partial reflexification of Latin, and that is a language formed by substituting new vocabulary into an existing grammar. The purpose of lingua ignota is unknown, nor do we know who besides its creator was familiar with it. In the 19th century, some believed that Hildegard intended her language to be an ideal universal language. However, nowadays it's generally assumed that lingua ignota was devised as a secret language like Hildegard's unheard music. It would have come to her by divine inspiration. Inasmuch as the language was constructed by Hildegard, it may be considered to be one of the earliest known constructed languages. Another artificial language that they're thinking could be was uh, arithmeticus nomenclature. Now, I couldn't really find anything on this artificial language, this arithmeticus nomenclator. Now, it's not nomenclature, but nomenclator with an O-R, not U-R. However, with that being said, nomenclature, with a U-R-E on the end of it, is a system of names or terms or the rules for forming these terms in a particular field of arts and sciences. The principles of naming vary from the relatively informal conventions of everyday speech to the internationally agreed principles, rules, and recommendations that govern the formation and use of specialist terms in scientific and other disciplines. Arithmeticus probably relates to something mathematical. Therefore, arithmeticus nomenclator probably has something to do with numbers substituted for words and vice versa, although I'm not entirely sure, but I'm quite positive it has something to do with words and numbers. 
Another artificial language that they're saying that this could be written in or devised from is Wilkins language. Now, Wilkins language is named after John Wilkins, who was an English clergyman, natural philosopher, and author, as well as one of the founders of the Royal Society. He was Bishop of Chester from 1668 all the way up until his death on November the 19th of 1672. Wilkins is one of the few persons to have headed a college both at the University of Oxford and the University of Cambridge. He was a polymath, although not one of the most important scientific innovators of the period. His personal qualities were brought out and obvious to his contemporaries in reducing political tension in Oxford and founding the Royal Society on nonpartisan lines and in efforts to reach out to religious nonconformists. He was one of the founders of the new natural theology compatible with the science of the time. He is particularly known for an essay towards real character and philosophical language written in 1668, which he attempted to create a universal language to replace Latin as a completely unambiguous tongue with which scholars and philosophers could communicate. One aspect of this work was a suggestion of a decimal system of measurement, such as the metric system. Now, another artificial language that this thing is related to is um, Beck's universal character. Beck's universal character is named after Cave Beck, an English schoolmaster and clergyman and author of The Universal Character, which was published in London in 1657, in which he proposed a universal language based on a numerical system. Now get this. This is the book's full title. Okay, they just It's simply called The Universal Character or Beck's Universal Character, but this was the full and complete title of the book. <clears throat> Here we go. The universal character by which all nations in the world may understand one another's conceptions, reading out of one common writing their own mother tongues, an invention of general use, the practice whereof may be attained in two hours space, observing the grammatical directions, which character is so contrived that it may be spoken as well as written. How in the hell are you going to get that on a book title? That would be, it's the characters would be so small and cover up the whole entire front of the book that you couldn't read. Anyway, in his book, Beck sought to invent a universal language that could be understood and used by anyone in the world, no matter what their mother tongue. And it was based on the 10 Arabic numerals, 0 through 9, which he proposed the following pronunciations. For number 1, on, A-U-N. For number 2, two. T-O-O. For number three, four. Or excuse me, for number three, tray. Excuse me. For number four, four orfo. F-O-R, separate word, O-R-F-O. For number five, fi. F-A-I. Number six, sick. S-I-C. Number seven, sin. S-E-N. Number eight, at. A-T. Number nine, nin. N-I-N. And zero, was O, the letter O. The combinations of the, 
of these characters intended to express all the main words in any language were to be arranged in numerical order from zero to 10,000, which he considered sufficient to cover all words in general use. Every word was assigned a unique number, and this number was the same whatever the native language of the user. Each language would have its own alphabetically ordered list of words for reference. Letters were also used in this system either before or after the number to indicate concepts like nouns, cases, verbal tenses, stuff like that. Now, the system at the time aroused some interest, but it wasn't really well received by those who studied it, as you can guess. The words were in most instances extended to an unimaginable length, and the difficulty of discovering the meaning of the numerical group which represented the desired radical was increased by the still greater difficulty of disconnecting the number from the modifying appendage and of analyzing the component parts of the latter. Just didn't catch all whatsoever, as you can, can imagine. And then finally, we have an uh, artificial language that's connected, that they think may be connected with the Voynich manuscript, of Johnston's synthetic language, which I was unable to find anything on this language at all. Uh, I looked and looked and looked and was unable to, to gather any information on that. So those are all of the artificial languages, coded languages, fake natural languages, and natural languages that, that could be associated with the Voynich Manuscript. So now we're going to get to the theory that there is no an intelligible underlying text. It could be written in um, glossolalia, which is something like writing in tongues, or it could be some sort of random type forgery. It could be psychologically random strings or mechanically generated random strings. It could just be the product of complete someone's imagination and they just started writing stuff and, and uh, some sort of weird uh, calligraphy type script and liked it and just kept on doing it. Who knows? Um, no one at this point. In analytic terms, there are a few particularities worth noting here. And some of this stuff kind of can go way over our heads here because we're talking about languages and writing and stuff like that. And I am not a linguist, as you can obviously tell, right? I am not a linguist. Um, so I'm sure that there are very few of you who are going to be listening to this show are linguists either, not downplaying on anyone's intelligence. I consider myself to be a fairly uh, intelligent person, but I'm no linguist, obviously. So, you know, it's just not something that's very popular out there that everybody and their brother's going to study, right? So here in analytic terms, there are a few particularities worth noting, as I just said. The second order entropy is too low for a European language using a simple substitution cipher. The text follows roughly the first and second of Ziff's laws of word frequencies. The word length distribution is different from Latin's. Latin words tend to be uh, shorter than Latin words. Correlation analysis seems to indicate that the spaces are indeed separating these quote-unquote words as in a natural language. 
Now, there is some evidence for two different languages or dialects, and perhaps more than one scribe, probably indicating an ambiguous coding scheme. The text has very few apparent corrections, and the structure of words is extremely rigid. There are many words that are repeated, like word repetitions, up to three times. And some characters in the key-like sequences do not appear anywhere else in the manuscript. Computer analysis of the Voynich manuscript has only deepened the mystery. One finding has been that there are two languages or dialects of what they're calling uh, Voynichese, which are called Voynich A and Voynich B. The repetitiousness, for lack of a better word, of the text is obvious to casual inspection. In other words, you don't have to be a linguist or, or a code breaker or cipherer to look at the text and see that there's repetition of words going on there. Entropy is a numerical measure of the randomness of text. <clears throat> the lower the entropy, the less random and the more repetitious it is. The entropy of, of samples and of, of Voynich text is lower than that of most human languages. Only some Polynesian languages are as low. Tests show the Voynich text does not have its low H2 or second order entropy measures solely because of a repetitious underlying text. That is one that often repeats the same words and phrases. Text, uh, tests also show that the low H2 measures are probably not due to an underlying low entropy natural language. A verbose cipher one which substitutes several ciphertext characters for one plaintext character, can produce the entropy profile of the Voynich text. Now, what in the hell does all that mean? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Like I said, I'm no linguist, and I definitely don't, uh, I'm not a code breaker. So your guess is, is as good as mine as to what all that means. But basically, in a nutshell, what I'm saying is they don't really know what in the hell is going on with the text of this. That's my take on it. So, let's talk about some possible solutions to the Voynich manuscript. When it was first shown to expert cryptologists, they thought that solving it would be as easy as the the text was compared uh, was composed of of words, some of which were more frequent and occurred in certain combinations. Now, this soon turned out to be a mistake. The text could not easily be converted into Latin, English, German, or a host of other languages, which might be possibly at the, the base of this document. A first solution was announced in 1919 by William Romaine Newbold, who caused a sensation by claiming that the manuscript did indeed contain the work of Roger Bacon, and that Bacon had known the use of the compound telescope and microscope seeing the spiral structure of the Andromeda galaxy only visible with modern telescopes and cell structures unknown in the 13th century. What Newbold discovered in the text was absolutely astonishing, enough to gather a lot of attention from the scientific community. The biological drawings in the text were described 
uh, as uh, as seminiferous tubes, microscopic cells with nuclei, and even spermatozoa. Among the astronomical drawings were the descriptions of a spiral nebula, a coronary eclipse, and the comet of 1273. One of the more baffling things about this was that many of the drawings of plants and of the galaxies appear to have been, well, invented. There is no doubt that if Bacon were the author of such a text, he must have had some way of obtaining the information. For instance, Newbold's translation of the caption near the drawing of the nebula of Andromeda, which clearly shows its spiral characteristics, give its location by the following. <clears throat> in a concave mirror, I saw a star in the form of a snail. Between the navel of Pegasus, the girdle of Andromeda, and the head of Cassiopeia. The attempts to crack the code, however, weren't over. In 1931, the wife of Voynich, Mrs. Voynich, took a, a photocopy of the manuscript to Catholic University in Washington, where Father Theodore Peterson reproduced it uh, photographically and started a complete hand transcription of the manuscript with a card index to the words and list of concordances. The transcription alone was reported to have taken him four years to do. Now, unfortunately, it's not known what conclusion, if any, he actually reached. In 1944, Hugh O'Neill, a renowned botanist at the Catholic University, identified various plants depicted in the manuscript as New World species, in particular, an American sunflower and a red pepper. <clears throat> this meant that the dating of the manuscript should be placed after 1493, when Columbus brought the first sunflower seeds to Europe. Now, however, the identification isn't certain. The red pepper is colored green, and the sunflower identification is equally contested. So I don't know how he saw a green pepper and said that's a red pepper unless he was just going strictly by the shape of the pepper. I don't know. <clears throat> Other people involved in the study of the manuscript were prominent cryptologists like W. Friedman and J. Tiltman, who independently arrived at the hypothesis that the manuscript was written in an artificial constructed language. This was based on the structure of the words. Such artificial languages were devised at least a century after the probable date of the Voynich Manuscript. Only the uh, aforementioned lingua ignota of Hildegard of Bergen predates the Voynich Manuscript by several centuries, but this language doesn't exhibit the structure observed by Friedman and Tiltman, and it provides only nouns and a few adjectives. Friedman came to know Peterson, who at the time presented his hand transcription and other material to him. After Friedman's death, all the material was moved to the W.F. Friedman collection of the Marshall Foundation. Recently, electronic versions of the manuscript made by Friedman's groups were produced from the typed sheets and made available 
on the internet. And yes, you can find actual PDF files of the entire Voynich manuscript on the internet, um, <clears throat> as well as uh, photos and all that other sorts of stuff. You can see it entirely on the manuscript. I mean, on the on the internet. Later acclaimed solutions seen the manuscript as simple substitution cipher, which can only decode isolated words. The first use of a more or less sophisticated cipher, a text in a vowelless Ukrainian, or the only surviving document of the Cathar movement. No acceptable plain text has ever been produced. Some interesting new insights into the manuscript were provided in the 70s, by a man named Prescott Courier, presenting some of his results in an informal Voynich Manuscript Symposium at the National Security Agency in Washington. Basing his findings on the statistical properties of the text, he showed that the manuscript is written in two distinct languages, which he simply called A and B. Now, I've talked about them a little while ago. Each bifolio was written in one of the two and bifolios in the same language were generally grouped together. Only in the herbal section is there a mixture of A and B folios. Based on the characteristics of the writing, he showed that the manuscript seems to have been written in two distinct hands. And he even suggested that there could be as many as five or even eight different hands. A significant feature is that the hand and language used on each folio are fully correlated. Courier's conclusion was that at least two people were involved in writing the Voynich manuscript, which he considered a point against the hoax theory. Although alternatively, the manuscript could have been written by one person in two distinct periods. Once again, we don't know and we probably never will. Due to the lack of success in the decipherment, a number of people have proposed that the manuscript is nothing more than a simple hoax. Well, not a simple hoax, an elaborate hoax. The manuscript could either be a 16th century forgery to be sold for a hefty sum to Emperor Rudolph II, who was interested in rare and unusual items, or a more recent one created by Mr. Voynich himself. The latter is effectively excluded both by expert dating of the manuscript and by the evidence of its existence prior to 1887. One problem with the earlier hoax theory is that certain word statistics, as outlined in Zipp's laws, found in the manuscript are characteristic of natural languages. In other words, it's unlikely that any forgery from the 16th century would be by chance or produce a text that followed Zipp's laws, which were first postulated in 1935. Since 1990, a multidisciplinary group of varying size, generally between one and 200 people, dispersed all around the world and connected through the internet, has maintained an electronic mail form on the decipherment of the Voynich Manuscript. This has led to a lively exchange of ideas and the definition of two main goals, a machine-readable transcription of the manuscript text and the study of the text through numerical experiments. Now, just recently, this year, 
This Voynich manuscript, the most mysterious text in the world, may have had a breakthrough in being deciphered. This is, what, a 600-year-old document. Been baffling people for centuries. And as I said, it's called the most mysterious manuscript in the world, the Voynich Manuscript. It's been baffling minds for the better part of a millennium here. And now there's a University of Bedfordshire professor of applied linguistics who claims that maybe, just maybe, he's made a breakthrough in cracking this code. Now, <clears throat> through carbon dating, the Voynich Manuscript, named after the dealer that found it in 1912, Wilfred Voynich, through carbon dating, the Voynich Manuscript was found to have been created sometime in the early 1400s and possibly created in northern Italy during the Italian Renaissance. Now that we've already gone over, right? The manuscript has never been even slightly decoded. The individual words, the sentence formation, or even the diagrams of stars and plants that are found throughout have not been solidly identified. There's, there's been so many unproven hypotheses put forth over the years that it's widely considered that the manuscript was intentionally created as a very well-made hoax, right? Professor and amateur cryptographers, uh, excuse me, professional, not professor, professional and amateur cryptographers haven't come close in making any kind of a breakthrough. And that includes both World War I and World War II code breakers. However, linguists, linguistics professor Stephen Bax announced earlier this year that he has finally made a breakthrough in deciphering the text by focusing on identifying proper names. The Voynich Manuscript contains over 170,000 glyphs most of which are created using simple strokes of the pen. For the most part, an alphabet with a maximum of just 30 characters would account for the majority of the manuscript. Furthermore, analysis of the text has found that the language pattern resembles the patterns of natural human languages. Illustrations in the text suggest that it can be divided into six sections covering the subjects of human biology, herbs, astronomy, cosmology, recipes, and medicine. Now, earlier I said four areas are four sections. Now they're saying that it's six sections, according to our linguistics person here, maybe. <clears throat> All this suggests that the Voynich Manuscript is not a hoax as it would be one of the most complex, intelligent hoaxes in history. But there wouldn't be much gain from putting all that effort into creating a hoax that ultimately amounts to, uh, I don't know, us sitting here scratching our heads going, I wonder what the hell this thing says, right? Professor Bax, however, may have just put the final nail in the hoax theory's coffin. <clears throat> Excuse me while I get a drink here. 
having throat problems tonight. Okay, so Bax explains that his potential breakthrough involved identifying proper nouns, namely through identifying the plants and stars depicted in illustrations found throughout the text. The way similar strategies have been used to identify Egyptian hieroglyphs, apparently. From there, Bax used the proper nouns as something of a legend for deciphering other characters. Among the notable terms deciphered, the constellation Taurus was discovered. What appeared to be the seven-star cluster of Pallades was identified, as well as the word Cantarian, uh, which appeared to be uh, used to identify the medieval herb century. Now, Cantarian is spelled K-A-N-T-A-I-R-O-N. Cantarian is how I'm pronouncing it anyway. You know how I managed to slaughter most of the words here in this show, so probably slaughtering that one as well. Now, it's also still possible that the Voynich manuscript is indeed a hoax. Even more likely, it could just be one traveler's journal through foreign lands. The flora and star documentation could suggest this. And though his language was lost, and though um, was lost to time, his journal was not this traveler. And perhaps through the same action that bought the book to Wilfred Voynich, a simple sale. Bax has not stated that he has solved the 600-year-old mystery. Rather, he's reporting his findings in order to compel other linguists and cryptologists to join in and help decode the text using what might very well be the first ever real breakthrough regarding the Voynich Manuscript. So, in conclusion, what are my opinions on the Voynich Manuscript? Boy, you know what? I'm really on the fence about this thing. I have thought and thought and thought about this. I've known about the Voynich. Damn, I hit my... uh, Mike, stand again. Sorry. I have known about the Voynich Manuscript for many years. I've looked at the text. I've looked at the pictures, the illustrations, the drawings, what have you. And the text kind of reminds me of Leonardo da Vinci's coded text that he wrote. Remember, he wrote from left to right backwards. Like... If you held it up to a mirror, you would be able to read his text or his his writing. But he wrote in a in a mirror-like style, instead of from, uh, I, I said from left to right. He wrote from right to left. He wrote in a mirror-style handwriting. If you just look at it, just pick up some of his stuff and look at it, it looks like crap. I mean, it's like what what the hell is this? You know, WTF, right? But you hold it up to a mirror and you can apparently read some of his stuff. Although his, his, his way of writing was very, um, I'm not going to say sloppy. It was very difficult to read anyway. Normally he wrote in this coded writing to basically keep what he wanted a secret, a secret, right? Well, the Voynich manuscript, the, 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 it reminds me very much of that. And I wonder if someone hasn't thought of that as well 
and held the shit up to a, a mirror and tried to read it. But I doubt that would work. That would be too simple, right? So once again, I'm, I'm on the fence with this because I really don't know if it's a hoax or if it's something that's real. It's even been postulated that this is a manuscript written in an alien language describing plant life and constellations that aren't even in this galaxy. Now, wouldn't that be something? You know, maybe uh, someone was abducted by aliens, uh, went up to their uh, mothership, or maybe even possibly their home world, learned their language or whatever, and uh, learned how to, their text and learn how to write it. Who knows? That's that's a, a possibility that has been postulated uh, by more than one person. I don't necessarily know that I believe in that, but it's on the table, right? If it's a hoax, why would someone go through all of that trouble and write this book that was almost 300 pages and have all of these illustrations and drawings in it, why would someone go through all that trouble just to play a prank? Unless there was major, major money involved in it. Now, like I said, it was sold, uh, we know, at one point in time for the equivalent of what is $14,000 today. Now, back then, you're set for life, right? If you got fourteen grand back then, in the the fifteenth century or the thirteenth century, whenever the hell it was written and sold, you know, you're set for life. But you would think that if someone was going to come up with a hoax like that, that that would take years of of planning and and actually carrying out of the the writing and the drawings. I mean, the the, the drawings in there are just they're just spectacular drawings. They're really good. The person who drew it was a was a talented artist. So not only would this person have had to have been a talented artist, but he would also had to have been uh, very uh, affluent in, in creating fake writing. That's kind of goes towards the, it could have been two people together. One dude is like, look, I can write this shit. I've invented this fake writing. I'm going to write it in and you're a good artist. So you draw the pictures in there and we'll split it 50, 50. You know, because there's just as many drawings as there are texts, you know. So I don't I don't know. I am at a loss. I am totally and completely on the fence on this. And I have no idea if it's fake or not. I wish I could tell you. But I just don't know. So my conclusion it could go either way, man. Uh, you know, I'm usually pretty set in what I what I believe and what I come to terms with. You know, I'm either going to say, yes, this is a, a fake, or no, this is real, or yes, I believe in that, or no, I don't believe in the other. But on this one particular instance, I am totally just completely on the fence because I just don't see why other than monetary gain, someone would go through all the trouble of doing something like this. And like I said, that that's not something you just sit down and in a couple of days you have this. I mean, this is something that at the very least took months to do. I'm thinking it took years. So you just can't, it, it would have to be something that was planned out 
very meticulously and they knew or he knew or she knew that this was going to get them some good monetary gain. On the other hand, if it is a real thing and a real text, what the hell kind of language is it in? Or is it just somebody who, like Leonardo, developed their own secret style of writing, their own secret language that only they knew, and this book wasn't meant for anyone else's eyes? It's just um, really baffling. And everybody loves a good mystery, especially me. And it's just it's great to sit and speculate and think of wow, could this actually be real or is it a hoax? So, if you would like to see what the Voynich Manuscript looks like, if you want to see a copy of it, I'm going to direct you to the following website. You need to go to the Beneke Rare Book and Manuscript Library website. And here is the address. HTTP colon backslash backslash there's no ww it's a http address b r b l that's bravo romeo bravo lima b r b l dash d as in delta l as in lima b r b l dash d l dot library dot yale dot e d u that's brbl-dl.library.yale.edu. That will get you to the Beneke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. <clears throat> From there, just do a, a search for the Voynich Manuscript. How do you spell Voynich Manuscript, Sandman? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Here's how you spell the word Voynich. V O Y N I C H Voynich manuscript. Now, if you want the direct link, uh, it's it's a big long link, it, and I'm not going to there or sit here and and try to tell you what this big long link is. And if you want, <clears throat> excuse me, if you want the direct link, just go to my website www.parareality.com. There on the homepage. Under the description of this show, I'm going to have the link up, and you can click directly on that link, which will take you to the actual, straight to the page to where the, the pictures of the actual Voynich manuscript are. And you can look at the thing from cover to cover in all its wonderful glory. Now... <clears throat> I said earlier that I didn't know if you could, you know, like go in there and check it out or actually go in and, and say, hey, I want to see this thing. But you know what? Actually, you can. Um, you you have to request to view in the reading room. And um, they will let you actually view this manuscript if you want to make the journey to Yale university you can actually excuse me you can actually um read the, or physically see this manuscript i don't know if they will let you um actually touch it but i know you can view it 
Now, I don't know, you know, if they have someone that's going to be there that's going to turn the pages for you or if you have to have the white gloves on or what kind of credentials you have to have to actually, um, you know, view this thing. I have no idea. Um, but uh, you can actually physically view it. And their description of it says parchment. Um, including five double folio, three triple folio, one quadruple folio, one sextuple folio, folding leaves, whatever the hell that means. And it says it's a scientific or magical text in an unidentified language and cipher apparently based on Roman minuscule characters. See the database of archival collections and manuscripts for more information. And it says... uh, We welcome any additional information you might have. If you know more about an image on our website, or if you are the copyright owner, believe you have, uh, believe we have not properly attributed work, please contact us. I don't think you're going to have to worry about that. Uh, They list, um, they don't have the authors there, but under the subjects, it has botany, uh, Roger Bacon, the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II, John D. A lot of the people that we just talked about, Wilfred Michael Voynich, Anastasius Kircher, it, you know, it, it has a lot of information there on their website. And like I said, you can actually see the um, manuscript in all of its glory right there in full color on the Benneke Rare Book and Manuscript Library website. And that is no www. Once again, the website address is http colon backslash backslash brbl dash dl dot library dot yale dot edu there just search for the Voynich manuscript or if you want the direct link to that page just go to my website www.parareality.com and I'll have the link there under the description for this show that you're listening to right now so man I am going to take a break. It is break time for me. As you can tell, I've had throat issues tonight, and uh, it's time for me to take a quick break so I can get something to drink. No, not an adult beverage, just a beverage, because I'm not an adult yet, not mentally anyway. Uh, So I can get something to drink, rest my throat for a little bit, and uh, I'll be back in just a little bit with the paranormal review. You know, I couldn't find any... I always try to have music that's kind of relative, relating to the topic that I'm talking about in some shape, form, or fashion, at least in my mind. What the hell are you going to have musically that's going to relate to the Voynich Manuscript? I don't know, so I just picked out some shit for you to listen to. So uh, I'll be back in just a few minutes. Enjoy this, and I'll start winding down the show with the Paranormal Review. Enjoy. Slip to the void, to the dark, to the fall Crawl to the life you shouldn't know You should never come this way To test the hands of fate You don't belong here Peel back the skin your eyes is born to the abyss but be warned 
Touching you, babe
You are listening to the award-winning Parareality Radio, winner of the 2013 Paranormal Award for Best Radio Show. Join me, Sandman, as I take you on a journey to a world beyond science where ghosts, poltergeists, UFOs, and other strange phenomena exist. New episodes are broadcast the first Monday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Turn on, tune in, and find out. Hello, everybody. This is Sandman. I want to thank you for listening to Parareality Radio, and I'd like to invite you to check out my side project. It's called Set It Off. It's a half-hour-long show where I vent my frustrations about anything from politics, religion, pop culture, and celebrities to rude people, stupid people, or that guy who drives too slow in the fast lane. It can be just about anything that, well, sets me off. It can only be heard on Spreaker and on Facebook. Just go to Spreaker.com and search for Set It Off. Or listen to it on my Facebook page, which is Sandman.Parareality. There's no set schedule for the show because it's completely random. So check for new episodes often. Remember, it's called Set It Off, and you never know what I'm going to say next. Do you want to get in touch with the show? Got a comment about tonight's episode? Maybe you've got an idea for a topic for a future episode. Email me, sandman at parareality.com. Leave a message on the studio line at 615-692-1170. Listen to new episodes of Parareality Radio the first Monday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time online at parareality.com. Turn on, tune in, and find out. Okay, it is time for the Paranormal Review. Man, that music that I've got for the Paranormal Review is spooky stuff, man. I love it. I, lo- I love that I did that. I, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tout myself, right? Okay, I'm patting myself on the back. Here I am patting myself on the back for that. I, lo- I love that. Okay, <clears throat> enough, enough about me. It is time for the next to last Paranormal Review for the season. This Paranormal Review is Monsters and Mysteries in America. <clears throat> not going to say it's one of my favorite shows, but it is an enjoyable show. So here's the plot. It features first-person accounts with everyday people who believe they have come face-to-face with real-life folktale fiends. Monsters and Mysteries in America travels our country's untamed wilderness to tell of its storied past. It also features reenactments of these stories to get its point further across. It has no real regular star because it features three different vignettes, all from different people. And these people are actually 
the ones that are being interviewed are actually the people who have encountered these monsters and mysteries across our great nation. So here, without any further ado, is the review or my review of monsters and mysteries in America. Buried deep within your cable package is a channel you've probably found yourself tuning into more and more often, the Destination America channel, which is part of the Discovery Network. The channel says it's emblazoning television screens with the grit and tenacity, honest and work, honesty and work ethic, humor and adventurousness that characterize our nation. This apparently includes introducing us to things called Sheep Squatch, Mothman, Chupacabras, Lake Monsters, Zombies, and various other cryptozoologic creatures as featured on the series Monsters and Mysteries in America, which travels around the country chronicling the unexplained. The show kicked off its first season focusing on Appalachia, a, a place a lot of Americans are already afraid of just on its own. So what do the shoot first ask questions later Appalachian people fear? Well, apparently, Sheep Squatch, Aliens, The Mothman, and other things you find deep in the woods. Appalachia is not the only region targeted with its tales, though. In the second week, the show moved to the Pacific Northwest, where the original Sasquatch, a lake monster, and other spooky sightings were detailed. The theme continued with each episode focusing on a different region of the country. <clears throat> the series like most of Destination America's stuff, seems to it seems like it's born from a genuine place, which does deserve some credit. It takes a serious documentary approach to its bizarre subjects, creating reenactments and featuring first-hand accounts of the monsters in question. Having three monsters in each episode also gives just the right amount of time to each subject or each monster before getting too repetitive. It's actually kind of refreshing in its lack of snark, and even though there are many unintentionally hilarious moments, it's not the exploitation TV that's rampant in the current documentary scene. Instead, there's just a collection of odd little vignettes which make for great, bizarre conversational fodder and are surely sending hack writers everywhere scrambling to write a based-on-a-true-story schlock horror or next sci-fi original movie script for Sheep Squatch, you know. <clears throat> Monsters and Mysteries, it's not going to go into the canon of great TV, but who can resist a show that describes the Sheep Squatch as a, quote, crossover between mutton and man, a sheep that's gone savage. That's fantastic stuff if you're in the right mood for it, isn't it? It's definitely... Tin foil hat time for sure because the military makes a lot of appearances during this series, allowing just enough doubt to launch a thousand conspiracy theories. But it's also kitschy, lower brain stuff, lower brain fun. And this show has finished its second season, and <clears throat> instead of focusing uh, on uh, specific areas of the country as it did in its first season, it's now focusing on three different types of, of monsters. And first season it was like, you know, Appalachia and then 
Pacific Northwest and then Midwest or whatever. And, and now it's focusing more on like, you know, it'll have an episode like Chupacabra's uh, Mothman's and Grey Aliens or something, you know, of that nature. Um, <clears throat> I've, believe it or not, I've actually spoken to a person who was uh, interviewed on Monsters. I've actually spoken to two people who were interviewed on uh, Monsters and Mysteries in America. Um, and uh, I got mixed reviews from from them. One person had a good experience. One person did not have a, a great experience in, in his opinion. Uh, it's still um, <clears throat> a good mind-numbing, you know, don't-have-to-think-about-it type show. Now, the paranormal-themed television shows seem to have found a niche in every, just about every channel on your cable package, uh, except for maybe Bravo. Of course, if they could do a paranormal Real Housewives, that, that would probably be uh, that's probably next. I mean, they've done Real Housewives of every damn thing else. You know, why why not do Real Housewives of the Paranormal? I, you know, uh, maybe I should pitch that to that gay dude. What's his name? Andy, whatever. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, Monsters and Mysteries in America, uh, it, it, like I said, it's not going to go down in television history as a great TV show, but it is a, a very well put together TV show. The production value on this is actually um, quite good, and um, I couldn't imagine uh, a show of of this nature being done um, much better. I mean, you, you can probably make improvements on everything, you know, but. The way that they have uh, put this thing together has actually wound up to be um, pretty, it's, it's done pretty well in my <clears throat> not so humble opinion. So what do I give Monsters and Mysteries in America as far as my rating goes? I give it a four out of five. I don't think that, uh, it's, like I said, it's this worthy of a five-star rating, but it's definitely worth a four out of five because it is, it, it does have really great production value. The stories in it um, are <clears throat> short enough to keep your interest peaked. I, I would, I would like to say, I, I would like to see them instead of doing three stories per episode, I think I would like to see them do two stories an episode to, so they could go just a little bit more in depth into each one. <clears throat> Excuse me. However, the three stories you certainly don't want to go any more than that. Like I said in my review, it 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 gives just enough info to keep things from getting really repetitive. So the show itself, while it could be better, the production value is really good. Um the people that they interview on this are really what makes the show, in my opinion, the most entertaining because most of the time, and I'm sure this is done by design. Most of the time this is done, uh, on, um, people who let's just say, 
are not the most sophisticated people in the whole entire world. Uh, most of them are, you know, backwoods, uneducated people. Uh, a lot of them have, uh, let's just say, not a full set of teeth in their mouth. Um, look like they probably could take a couple of more showers, you know, <laughs> you know, um, I, I really would hate to have to be, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> oh my God. I cracked myself up. I really would hate to have to be the, uh, the makeup person on this, uh, on this episode. Cause I really have to dig deep into the makeup kit for some of these people. Um, and then, you know, you do have those people on there who are, um, you know, more refined, more sophisticated, uh, maybe seem like they have a little bit better of an education and stuff, you know. Uh, so it, it really does run the gambit on the the demographics, which helps to add to the legitimacy of the series because I think that if you are going to have a an interview type series like this that that also features the reenactments, but if you're going to have an interview type series, you need to really be as diverse as you possibly can. You don't need to just show the good looking people or uh, the um, people who look like they uh, you know have money who you know work a uh, a good job or whatever you need to show the normal everyday person. And if that person happens to be good looking, that's fine. Or if that happens to be, you know, the toothless wonder who hasn't had a shower in a week, well then there you go. You know, I think it helps add to the legitimacy of the series. That's one of the things that I have always thought that kind of sets my radio program apart from others is that, I when I interview people, I don't just interview the famous people. Uh, I interview the normal, ordinary, everyday person. Sometimes that interview turns out to be pretty damn good. Uh, sometimes it turns out to be not so good. Um, <clears throat> you just you just never know. But you need to have a good demographic of uh, good representation of what's going on in the world. And I think Monsters and Mysteries in America does just that. So as I said, not the best paranormal-themed television show in the world. Um, I would have given it a 3 out of 5, but the whole reason I gave it that extra point was because of, the number one, the production value, and number two, I do appreciate the fact that they interview... Um, any, not, I'm not going to say anyone and everyone, but they do interview a very diverse set of people. So, therefore, Monsters and Mysteries in America gets four out of five on the rating. <clears throat> and that, my friends, does it for the Paranormal Review. Wow, and with that being said, I just realized I got a whole 30 minutes. I got a half hour left of the show. So, uh... I think what I'm going to do, everybody, is um, take a quick break here again and uh, let you listen to a little bit more music 
and I'm going to come back and I'm going to wind the show down, kind of tell you about what you're going to expect here in the uh, the last show of the season, season eight of Parareality Radio. So uh, I'll be back in a minute. Check this out.
You are listening to Para-Reality Radio, the award-winning radio program that explores ghosts, UFOs, cryptozoology, and strange phenomena of all kinds. Broadcast on the first Monday of every month from Nashville, Tennessee, join your host, Sandman, on a quest to discover the hidden mysteries that surround us all. Listen to current and past shows at parareality.com. Call the studio at 615-692-1170. Email the show at sandman at parareality.com. Turn on. Tune in. Find out. All right, it is time to wind down the final 20 minutes or so of the show. And I got a little filler time here because I had to uh, uh, finish things up a lot sooner than what I was anticipating. But that's okay because that happens. I still try to give you guys a two-hour show regardless of uh, anything else. So I got some time to fill up here. So I thought that I would uh, go ahead and tell you a little bit about what's going to uh, come up with the uh, end of the season here, season eight for Parareality Radio. You know, eight seasons is a long time to be doing uh, a radio broadcast, uh, especially one of this nature. In today's world, it seems like Everybody and their brother who uh, is interested in the paranormal, it seems like they, they all think they can do a podcast or a radio show. Well, you know, just get online and do it. I got a computer. I got a microphone, some shitty-ass microphone and a internet connection. And I'll get online and I'll do my own paranormal-themed radio show. And the thing about it is that everybody tries to do it. Well, not everybody, but 90% or better try to do it on the cheap. And they're not willing to put any production value or any real thought or effort into doing their program. And they find out that if you don't have a good quality show, it's you're not going to get a lot of listeners, number one. Number two, they find out that doing something like this on your own is really hard. And number three, they find out that if you don't put some kind of money into it, it's not going to be worth the shit anyway. So I know I took a break for a couple of years. Um, The show got too big. I was doing too much. And, um, I had other things going on in my life and something, something had to go. And I wasn't having the time to put towards doing a good quality broadcast anymore. And the, really the season five of the show, which was the last season that I did on Live 365 before I retired, it really was not that great of a season. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm not happy to say that, but it really wasn't that great of a season because I simply did not 
have the time anymore to devote to putting on a good quality broadcast like what I used to. So it was time to retire for a little while anyway. I really thought when I when I retired back at the end of 2009, I really thought that I wasn't ever going to come back. Um, but I began to miss it and I got the bug again. And so, I, you know, now I'm doing a much more scaled down version of the show instead of doing <clears throat> one show or two shows a month. I'm only doing one show a month, which is an, another thing that people do is they, they get into it and they automatically try to do too much because they want to do one show a week. Well, it's when you don't have any, um, budget for the show and you don't, have a staff to help you with your research and your content and you're trying to do it all on your own. And let's face it, we're not making money doing this. We're not doing this because we're getting rich off of it. We pay basically to do this or, or the good quality shows do anyway. And <clears throat> so if you're working a, a, a nine to five job, eight hours a day, You've got to spend some time prepping and people just aren't doing that. You're, you're 90, 90% or better of the paranormal talk radio shows on the internet, at least 90%, the production quality sucks, especially if they're trying to do it by themselves. Now, if you happen to be one of those people who are working with a legitimate online radio um station uh, you're going to be paying them probably at least a hundred dollars uh, a month to do all the production that you don't have time to do and you can get a pretty good quality show but they're wanting you to do one show a week and once again you're not really making money off of that so you're getting uh poor content out of it and it's a lot of work and most people burn out very quickly so I went through the same thing it took me a while but I went through the same thing kind of some burnout because I had a lot of stuff going on in my life and everything then but anyway I retired for about two and a half or so years and came back in a much more scaled down version and like I said started off saying eight seasons is even though it was not consecutive seasons, still eight seasons is a long time to be doing a show like this. And I've learned a few things along the way, what to do, what not to do, um, developed my own style. And I'm still really enjoying putting all this together and doing this. And one of the things that I used to do before I, um, took a hiatus was at the end of every year, I used to do an annual contest, a big contest. Um, <clears throat> and I haven't done that since I've been back. So I think that I'm going to do a contest for the end of the year. Now, I've got several ideas that I'm working on. And I think right now is a little too soon to announce 
what the contest is going to be anyway. But I've got a, I've got th- about three ideas that I'm working on for a contest for the end of the year to bring back my annual end of the year contest. However, I do have the prize package already um, lined out in my head. So um, probably not going to make the announcement as to what the, uh, the contest is going to be until the middle of the month. Um, what's today? November the 3rd. I will say November the 17th. That will be my target date. Monday, November the 17th. I will make an announcement as to what the contest is going to be. And since this is in a podcast form, you're not going to hear it on the air, but you will be able to find out what it's going to be on my website, parareality.com. And also on my Facebook page, sandman.parareality there on Facebook. So the target date for the contest, the announcement is going to be Monday, November 17th on parareality.com or on my Facebook page, sandman.parareality. So I said I had a prize package worked out. What is the prize package going to be? Okay, here we go. This is the prize package. You're going to win an autographed copy of Isaac Weishaupt's book, A Grand Unified Conspiracy Theory, The Illuminati, Ancient Aliens, and Pop Culture. This is a great introductory guide, a beginner's guide, if you will, to conspiracy theories in the entertainment industry. Um, This book is... How many pages is this? It's 213 pages, just a little over 200 pages. Um, Paperback, obviously. A very good introduction to, like I said, uh, the conspiracy theories in uh, the entertainment industry and pop culture. Written by uh, last month's guest, Isaac Weishaupt. If you remember, I I had said on my, my website that I was going to announce how you could win a copy of his book. And I just never could figure out exactly what I wanted to do to win for you to win a copy of the book. So when I decided that I was going to bring back the end of the year contest, I uh, said, well, I'll include this in the prize package. So they're going to win, like I said, an autographed copy of Isaac Weishaupt's book, a grand unified conspiracy theory, the Illuminati, ancient aliens and pop culture. You're also going to win a, Parareality Radio t-shirt of your choice from the Parareality Radio store as well as a uh, limited edition official Parareality Radio mug. And there may be one or two other things that I throw in there. But those that's going to be your, uh, your grand prize package. Oh, I'll even throw in a 2015 Parareality, official Parareality Radio calendar. So you're going to get all kind of Parareality Radio gear, shirt of your choice from the Parareality Radio store, limited edition Parareality Radio mug, official Parareality Radio wall calendar for 2015, and <clears throat> the main prize is an autographed copy of a grand unified conspiracy theory autographed by the author Isaac Weishaupt himself. So 
There's your prize package. What is the contest going to be? Well, you'll have to figure it out on December the 7th. You'll have to find out on November the 17th. Going to make the announcement on Facebook, Sandman.ParaReality, and on ParaReality, the website, www.ParaReality.com. So turn on, tune in, and find out on Facebook and the website. That sounded like shit, didn't it? Oh, well. So I hope that I have some pretty good entries in this year's contest. Like I said, I got three ideas that I'm going for. Don't know exactly what I'm going to do just yet, but I'm sure I'll figure it out. Like I said, three ideas. I want to do something... I'm thinking about doing something kind of different. I've always done something kind of, you know, uh, paranormal themed or whatever. I'm thinking about doing something maybe just a little bit different this year. I don't know. But um, we'll see. All right, we'll see. So um, also make sure that you uh, listen to the December episode of Reality Radio because I'm going to have some major announcements concerning the future of the show, what's going to be coming up on Season 9, and um, hopefully these changes, of course, will be for the better and get you guys to uh, turn on, tune in, and find out a little bit more often to the show, to the podcast. So make sure you listen to the uh, December episode of Parareality Radio right here on uh, parareality.com, on Spreaker, and on Facebook. Wow. Having a lot of damn throat problems tonight. My freaking... Must be the change of the seasons because my freaking getting dry throat and Phlegm and all that crap in the back of my throat. Keep having to pause for a beverage here. Wow. Okay. So, that winds down the show as I've spent so much time rambling on and rambling on here, trying to fill up some time. Like I said, got a contest coming. Going to make the announcement of what the contest is on Monday, November 17th. Make sure you check out parareality.com. And check out my Facebook page, Sandman.Parareality, for the contest. I've already got the prize package in store, though. It is a copy, an autographed copy of A Grand Unified Conspiracy Theory, The Illuminati, Ancient Aliens, and Pop Culture, autographed by the author and guest on Parareality Radio, Isaac Weishaupt. A shirt of a t-shirt of your choosing off the Parareality Radio store. A limited edition Parareality Radio mug. And an official Parareality Radio 2015 wall calendar. So make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out on the 17th of November on Facebook and on Parareality.com for the announcement of what the contest actually is going to be. Everybody, I really do hope that you have enjoyed tonight's show. Let me know what you thought about it by sending me an email. That's sandman at parareality.com. 
sandman at parareality.com. Also, please remember to visit parareality.com. That's where you can find out all kinds of information about the show. You can listen to current and past episodes right there on parareality.com. And if you click on the Extras tab up at the top of the page, you can join the official Parareality Radio Forum. It's free to join. You can shop in the Parareality Radio Store, and you can even watch some show videos and other stuff. Also, don't forget to look me up on Facebook at Sandman.Parareality, or you can hear the show on Sandman or at Sandman.Parareality on Facebook as well. And you can also find out more about what's going on in the world of Parareality, some behind-the-scenes stuff and things like that. Now, I hope that you guys... Uh, for those of you who are regular regular listeners of the show, I hope that you enjoyed the original 1938 Mercury Theater production of Dracula that I had airing on the show for a, a special Halloween treat. Um, I ran across that uh, looking for something special for you guys, and I ran across a copy of that that I... Uh, couldn't couldn't pass by, so I wanted to give you guys a special Halloween treat. And also, those of you who frequent the Periality website, hope you also enjoyed the Monster Movie Mania marathon that I had going on special for the week of Halloween. And by the way, uh, I finally have gotten around to updating the uh, Periality episodes that I had, uh, uh, the uh, web TV series, the very short-lived and a very poorly done web TV series that I did. Um, I've had uh, the first six episodes I played on there, and, and I finally, I haven't uploaded anything in like a, a year. I uh, finally got around to uploading episode seven of Parareality Television on the website on parareality.com. It's there on the extras tab. So if you want to check out a new episode, you can uh, you can do that. And uh, if you want to watch more episodes the first six in case you missed them which you didn't miss much but in case you want to check them out you can check out my uh youtube site is parareality one that's the number one parareality one there on um youtube so uh there you go some extra special treats for you guys and don't forget on monday november 17th on facebook and on parareality.com, I will make the announcement of what the end-of-the-year contest is going to be, and you already know what the prize package is. Everybody, my next show is going to be available on Monday, December the 1st, 2014, the very last episode of the year and of Season 8 of Parareality Radio. going to be delving into the topic of religion for the... Uh, Christmas holidays, as always, seems to be a big topic uh, of conversation around uh, the the world. As you get uh, to the Christmas holiday season, a lot of religious topics start popping up. So I thought that I would end season eight with talking about religion. And once again, it's going to be on Monday, December first, twenty fourteen, at eight o'clock p.m. Central Time. Make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out. Everyone, I hope that this radio program opens your mind up to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change in the way that you see the world. If you wish to change, 
you must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. I hope that you have a wonderful evening, and I will see you again on Monday, December 1st at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Good night, everybody.